<laughs> so I had absolutely no involvement in it and I have no idea why I uploaded this video to YouTube. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. I'm Kevin Libwood, and today joined by Dr. Emma Hodcroft. Welcome to the Bioinformatics Lab podcast, Dr. Emma Hodcroft, uh, calling from uh, the Swiss Tropical Public Health Institute, where my understanding is you're relatively new in your position as a group lead and PI for the Epidemiology and Virus Evolution group. Is that right? That's right. So thank you so much for having me, Kevin. It's a real pleasure to be here. And that's right. I am brand new to the Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute. I started in November last year. So I've been here for a grand total of three months so far. <laughs> All right. Congratulations uh, on that new position. And you know, today I reached out to you because I'm very curious to have this conversation with respect to scientific communication, especially in the forms of social media. And I'm guessing throughout our conversation, we're going to be maybe broadening that to media at large. Uh, but before we really hop into things, I'm curious if you could provide a bit more of an introduction in your background and how you articulate your role in the world of microbial bioinformatics. Yeah, so my background was in HIV, which was a bit of an accident. It was supposed to be a temporary uh, job working in pathogens and HIV while I figured out what my true calling was, which I was pretty sure was something much more kind of theoretical and kind of big brain theory type stuff. But after a year working as a research assistant, I had caught the infectious disease bug and I never looked back. So since then, I did not only that research assistantship, but also my PhD and then three postdocs and currently now an assistant professor, all in infectious diseases. But in particular, I've often focused on viruses and focused on using the evolution that I have from my background, my, my undergraduate and my master's degree training for how we can look at those pathogens, both to learn about evolution, but then also how evolution can help us better understand pathogens and viruses as well. And of course, a lot of this has come to a, a head in the last few years with the ability to apply this to a data set that none of us could have imagined with, of course, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Emma, so well articulated. Like, there's there's so much about how you communicate that is like, you know, we see your face on, on media and interviews and things like that. It's like, I, it's it's so polished. It's so well done, concise and, and effective. And I, I appreciate that because I can tell myself even doing this podcast and starting to interact with people on different kinds of forms. It's like, I'm always kind of in my head a little bit, but you've got this, this, this thing about you where it's a honed skill. Um, and you know, jumping into the conversation, it was interesting looking at your media presence all over the place. I didn't realize that, by the way. I think you and I, we have interacted on our more technical communities of things like Micro Binfi, Phage, and, you know, running into each other at different conferences and things like this. So I always knew that you were relatively, actor, relatively active on things like Twitter um, and, and being able to communicate a lot of the projects that you've been involved in over the years. But then when I reached out to you, I saw you had something like 80,000 followers, which is unfathomable to most people in our field. Uh, looking at things like you're mentioning a New York Times article, interviews on Bloomberg, CNN, things go on. Um, and then I even noticed you had a Wikipedia page. Most people don't have Wikipedia pages. 
And I learned a ton about your background there, but I thought the most interesting thing is that your father also has a Wikipedia page. And that was bananas. And I saw that, I guess he had some kind of involvement as a chairman or a manager of some sorts in like a football league in Europe. And when I say football league for the American audiences, I mean soccer. And I'm curious if we can even start there. <laughs> if, if, you know, growing up in a house where your father's involved in this football club, did that in any way or how did that impact maybe your even early appreciation of communicating with a broader audience uh, some of the things maybe your dad had experience with? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And I don't think I've ever thought about it that from that angle, actually. Um, but it's true. So when I was growing up, my father, um, the oil business that he was part of, decided to buy a, a small, I should, I should really emphasize, a very small kind of local club in the northeast of England. And even though it was a small club, they... Actually, while he was the chairman, they went kind of up and down the rankings and we had some real, you know, knuckle grinding adventures as far as trying to get promotions, trying to move up leagues, trying to win cups, this kind of thing. So it did garner some kind of attention within the UK, I should be very specific, and never anything like the Premier League stuff that, that people in the US especially might be more familiar with. But it's true that because of this, my father was often in the media because of course, to the local townspeople, the football club is a big institution. It's been around for over 100 years. It was founded in 1908, I believe. And so people want to know, you know, how's it going? What players are we going to get? What's the strategy this year? All of the normal things that you would expect for a town to care about for their sports team. And I suppose that in some ways that was my most direct uh, interaction with the media, not directly, but mm -hmm. through my father and seeing what he had to deal with. And mostly it was, I mean, it was as positive as that kind of thing can be when, of course, tempers always run high. When, when sports is involved, this is no joking matter and every decision is scrutinized. But I think one thing it did teach me was to just be careful of the media. Not that there's something to be feared at all. In fact, they very often can be really helpful because they can help you to explain why you might have made a decision or why we're not taking that particular player this year in more detail than the rumors that might fly around. But of course, on the other hand, they can, you know, take the quote a little bit out of context or really play up one thing that you said in passing. And my father was always very aware of this. He was always kind of telling us that it was important for him to be very careful with what he said so that he could make sure that the message that he was trying to convey is the message that gets across rather than a throwaway statement that he might make without really thinking about it. At the same time, he was also really cautious in keeping a divide between the football club and his family. So he was pretty strict, actually. He, he pretty much refused to answer questions about um, his personal life outside of his personal history. So he would be happy to talk about you know, his education, why he got into, into the oil business. But he wouldn't even kind of famously, from my, I remember in my childhood, he would not even say how many children he had. <laughs> he felt like even this was just information that wasn't relevant. It just wasn't needed. And to him, it just felt like, you know, why risk bringing family into it when they're not, you know, they're not part of this football club. This is, this is my personal life. This is my professional life. I've never taken it quite that seriously, but it is really interesting to reflect on, you know, how much did that then shape my much later interaction with the media in at least coming at it from an angle where I had heard perhaps a more extreme approach and, and also heard stories of being careful about what you say and how you say it. Yeah, that's powerful, you know, be it a 
uh, a game on the pitch, trying to use as much you know, UK lingo <laughs> as I can conjure up here. But like, you know, a game against teams and like you said, the the fanatical sides of arguments and, and misconstruing messages, we can apply so much of exactly that to the world of science, especially over the last couple of years. So it's really interesting to hear that you have had at least uh, exposure to someone who's been in the fray of media and it's impacted how you how you've guided those lines. And you mentioned that maybe you didn't adopt as strict of a you know delineation between personal and professional, but it in some way shaped your I don't know if you want to call it media philosophy. Like I think I think at this point when you got eighty thousand followers, you have to have some level of a media philosophy, some strategy out there. So if not that strict, how do you play that line between personal information versus professional information? Yeah, so it's something that I think particularly when I'm the one sending the messages, I'm very conscious of. And to just explain that a little bit. So for example, I've had interview pieces that were really, especially you know, in the heart of the pandemic, people wanted to know more about me, about my background, my education, and I'm happy to talk about these things in that context. I actually think it can be really helpful because especially for younger scientists, knowing that I don't come from an academic family, seeing that I'm a woman in scientists, all of these things can be inspirational. If, if my story helps to kind of match up with another young scientist's story, I'm happy to share my story. But for example, when I'm on Twitter writing a message, my main purpose on Twitter isn't necessarily unless, again, unless I'm trying to say something about diversity in science or women in science or this kind of thing. My main message is not to talk about me, it's to talk about the issue at hand, which for much of the pandemic, of course, was pretty serious issues around what should we be doing, you know, what protection should we have in place, you know, how is the landscape looking, will we have another wave, what variant is on the horizon. And so it was always important to me to just keep in mind that if I'm going to bring in my personal opinions or personal things from my life, how is that helping the message that I'm trying to send or is it detracting from it? So it's not all about me. If I can say something to help bring a message home, for example, to, you know, say something about, yeah, these lockdowns suck. I know they suck because, because I'm in one too. I feel like that can be helpful. It can help to relate to people. It can remind people that I don't think any scientist like was like, yes, lockdowns, these are great, which I think some people had the opinion because of course we were subjected to them as well. And so were our friends and family and they were really disruptive and terrible. But to just insert my opinion into a thread about, you know, how, how viruses evolve is on the other hand, probably not very helpful. It's possibly distracting, possibly detracting from the message that I'm trying to send. And so, yeah, I, I'm not sure I could sum it up in, in like a one sentence philosophy, but in general, I try and just be very conscious of what am I, what am I trying to say? What's the main message I'm trying to get across? and is including something that's more personal, helpful or hurtful to that message or completely irrelevant, in which case it probably also doesn't need to be there. And just thinking very carefully about that. I think for me, another thing that's just quite important is to also remember that people, at least I imagine most people on Twitter are not following me because they want to hear every gripe and complaint that I have. I think, you know, this is something that's easy to do on social media and I won't lie, like, I mean, on Facebook or something, which I have much more, you know, as much more my close friends and family, of course I might complain about the fact that it's raining or something, but I see as like my role on Twitter, this is not why people are following me and it's not really, like, let's be honest, I don't think most people really care. So 
And I used rain, that's a very innocent example, but let's say in the pandemic, of course, there were a lot of things to complain about that were probably not as uh, unquestionable as nobody really likes the rain. <laughs> Um, and it's, so it was also worth being really cautious about, you might just be kind of expressing your opinion because of course we all have rights to opinions, but how is this, you know, in, in all honestly, how are people going to look at this? And is it going to be the trigger to start conversation about this, that, or the other that you don't really have any intention of following through and isn't the message you're trying to get across? I really appreciate that answer. And I think you're hitting on kind of something that's been brewing in my head in terms of the def different avenues the generations can approach media, like in speaking about your father, he was able to keep that completely separate. His only media forum was maybe newspapers and they were talking about a specific subject. You and I, I think we could probably both categorize ourselves as millennials, you know, and we grew up mm -hmm. in a world where social media came about and we were putting our personal or our personal things on certain media platforms and then our professional faces maybe on separate ones. Twitter and X kind of is this weird space where like, you could kind of hybrid, you know, you're both your personal and your professional. Um, but like you said, Facebook, for example, maybe that's your form where it could be a little bit more personal or gripe about X, Y, Z with, you know, no filter or at least a smaller filter. Or uh, I don't know what, what way to describe that way, uh, a different filter uh, than you might do with Twitter or, or LinkedIn or the source of like, things like that. But then the generation coming in like Gen Z and even younger, there is no different platforms, right? Like their whole personal lives and professional lives are kind of blended in the entire space. So I'm wondering if, did you, when you first made your X account or when you first made your YouTube or whatever it is, did you have that phase where it was personal information and then you've since had to sort of change the trajectory of your messaging of the content you're putting out there? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I started my Twitter account in like 2009. I, I would have, just started my master's degree. I mean, I, you know, I had no idea <laughs> what my life was going to do. I didn't know what exactly my trajectory would lead to. And I think like most people, I certainly didn't expect that I would ever be on TV or ever be interviewed or anything like this. And so of course I treated it just like whatever. I mean, to be fair, I don't think anyone, everyone was still discovering what Twitter was at that time, but I treated it like everyone else. Um, and so, yeah, you can go back in my Twitter history and find some pretty inane stuff about cats. And, you know, I think I was on a plane that was delayed and I tried, you know, the thing at the time was to hashtag the airline and, you know, uh, nothing came of that. Um, nothing, nothing, very thankfully, I've, I've always been a pretty boring person. And so there's nothing that I've ever felt like I never had to go back and clean up my history or go and delete messages. It's not exciting, but it's it's all pretty day to day, I would say. And, and a lot of it is about my cat, um, which is fair, I think, on the Internet. Um, but no, I for me, I certainly never set up any of these platforms with the idea that, oh, maybe I'll be famous one day and, and I need to or, or famous is too strong of a word. But maybe maybe anyone who will follow me in the future and this may count or I might have professional followers in the future, even if I wasn't well known, you know, other scientists might follow me and maybe I should be careful. I do think that it's it's harder these days because I think you start a lot younger, you know, you, you get on social media a lot younger. And I do think that however many messages you might send to people about, oh, you know, you you might post something that you regret later. It's I think it's just really hard to actually comprehend that when you're younger. I knew that when I opened my Twitter account in 2009, but I still didn't believe, like, 
it's very hard to imagine that your life will take a trajectory where it really will matter, especially if you're not, okay, I think there's probably some things that everyone could agree are probably a bad idea, but, you know, post posting just inane day-to-day -day stuff, it's very hard to imagine, will this ever really matter? So I do think it's really hard to know where to draw that line, especially for younger people and how you handle that. I, I don't think I have a magic solution, there, especially, as you say, since the situation has changed. I could probably give good advice to another millennial, but that is not what people are growing up with these days. <laughs> yeah, we we kind of lucked out. We we were born in the world before social media and kind of developed ourselves to some degree and then came into it, watched it kind of distribute across uh, social infrastructure in that way. Um, and I look at that timing as like, man, like if there were thoughts of my middle, middle school self, or not even thoughts of like, you know, recorded activities of my middle school self. Yeah, I don't know that I'd want that necessarily reflected uh, as a reflection of me, especially against, you know, some of the professional pursuits uh, I have in the space. Um, but yeah, I, it's food for thought, you know, hopefully, and maybe it's, it's going to be interesting as things evolve, though, too. Maybe it's also a world where you could see it be maybe more accepting of people's, you know, growth phase and experimental thoughts of they, that they had and inane ideas whenever they were young. And then as they grow up, it's like, yeah, I had that in my past and I've evolved as, as it went on. And uh, I had some uh, crazy activities when I was in middle school or high school. And <laughs> those things now follow me. Yeah. And I think it's also important to remember that it's, I think it, it should be possible for people to have at least some of that experimentation, because even though I was posting those inane things, those were still a chance that I was, you know, meeting people, keeping up with my friends, exploring the new technology of the day, which was Twitter. I know it's not, you know, that sounds really old fashioned now, but that was really groundbreaking at the time. And it would be horrible to think that, you know, in some alternative universe, I would have been so scared of the future repercussions of my actions that I just wouldn't have participated at all. I would have missed out on a really cool new technology. I would have missed out on meeting some people I'm still friends with today. I would have missed out on all of those trends that happened in the early days of Twitter, following news events live, you know, in ways that, that were unprecedented. And so I also hope that, yeah, that people don't get so afraid of these kinds of platforms that they simply opt out because they're so afraid of something that could happen in the future. Maybe a better way to think about it is, you know, to participate and just try and be really inane. I don't know, <laughs> try, don't worry too much about what you're posting, but also maybe don't post anything that's really terrible or your worst emo poetry if you're in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really glad you said that too, because I that actually relates to me over these past couple of months. I was, uh, Andrew and I did an episode on this on social media and, and our relation to it. And traditionally I've been more so the consumer side where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm seeing people's papers. I'm watching some of the drama that happens on, on Twitter or whatever it is, but I'm, I'm really just on the lurking side of things because it seemed relatively intimidating uh, to, to hop in there and see like, okay, do I want to even bother putting my ideas out there um, and seeing which way things sway depending on what, particular audience it's landing on that day and i would love to get your thoughts on that for sure on like audience feedback and things i didn't know if i wanted to participate in it but i would say that in andrew's uh bringing this this podcast idea uh to me and and putting it together and, and putting it out there it's been a blast like uh you know it's not we're, we're certainly not a huge audience but we have an audience of people who reach out to us and interact with us i like sharing it I, we, we've been having uh, more and more interesting conversations, this one included, where it's like, ah, I really want to share these things. 
Um, so it's like I feel like I'm, I'm building that callus a little bit of, uh, all right, it's cool to just put my thought out there and, and we'll see how it lands on uh, on the audience. And luckily at this point, again, having a small audience probably helps to this, but I haven't had that, you know, tinfoil hat individual who might be looking at a post and approaching it with, you know, vitriolic intent. I don't know if you have any, I'm guessing you have some of that experience <laughs> given as large as your platform is. And if you care to speak on that to, to any extent. Yeah. So, so you're right. Certainly. I mean, you don't get 80,000 followers and they all turn out to be really wonderful people that have insightful <laughs> things to tell you every day. Um, but I guess actually to just focus on the, on what you said though, I do think that maybe another part that we don't talk about as much, or at least I guess it probably just doesn't make headlines as much is the fact that a lot of this interaction can be super rewarding. I mean, every comment I get that people are saying, thank you so much for this information, or can you give your thoughts on, you know, this new variant that's come up, or can I find this information on your website? I mean, those are great. Those are so such great interactions. There's such great feedback. It's so nice to hear from people that what I'm doing is useful and that something I've said might have been impactful or meaningful or helpful. And so it does, I would say, largely make it worthwhile, at least for me. But of course, there is the other side of the coin, as you've alluded to. I feel pretty lucky because actually I have not had too many really terrible interactions um knock on wood i've never had anything that actually made me feel unsafe so i and i know that this is definitely not true for other people that did a lot of science communication in the in the pandemic and especially unfortunately for women so i feel very lucky in that regard i've definitely had people writing crazy things at me that were sometimes pretty weird but nothing that like i you know nothing that i felt that i actually in the real world was in any danger I've had plenty of people, lots and lots of people, of course, with conspiracy theories, accusing me of being part of a conspiracy theory, um, accusing me of covering up information. I've had people come and try and start big fights with me. I've had people sick their, you know, one billion followers on me. Um, and none of that is nice. But in general, what I have, my, my main, one of my kind of golden rules for being on Twitter that I came up with very early in the pandemic was that I just, I don't feed the trolls. I, if mm. people come with bad intentions, I just don't respond. And it makes you really boring. And they leave pretty quickly, actually, because their attention spans are very short. <laughs> the thing is, you'll, you'll never win. They have way more time than you. They do not seem to have any jobs that matter or any other hobbies that take up their time. And so you're, you're never going to win if, you know, they, they aren't genuinely asking questions. They aren't genuinely seeking knowledge. They just want to have a fight. And if you don't engage them in that, they will leave you alone very quickly. And that's the, the best strategy that I've found. What I will just add is one caveat to that is that on the other hand, I do try, if I feel like there's even a glimmer that someone really is curious or really is misunderstanding, and there's even a chance that I might be able to get across to them, I do try at least with one tweet to see if I can start a, a helpful dialogue. So I'm always happy to talking to people. Um, and actually, I've had people come at me pretty aggressively, accusing me of, you know, I mean, this is in the early, this is not recently, this is earlier in the pandemic, but, you know, accusing me of, oh, these mutations, they don't do what you say, or the counts aren't what you say. And I've gone in with kind of over-enthusiastic kindness, whatever expression on my face might be in real life. 
and just, you know, been like, oh, that's a great question. Let me see if I can explain it better. Here's what's actually happening. Here's a little diagram. And it's actually amazing how many people, like, they just don't expect that, I think. And you can actually win them over. You can end up having a really good conversation with them just for kind of playing a bit naive and being like, oh, wow, yes, I can help you. Let me just help you out and kind of ignoring the rudeness. But of course, this is only in cases where it seems like people might be open to that. Some people, it's very clear from the minute they arrive, they're here to start a fight. They're not going to listen to anything. And for those people, I mean, I don't I don't have time for that. So I don't waste any time on it. <laughs> it it's like the, the rules of the kindergarten playground are also true out there <laughs> in the in the world that is X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, um, where you can ignore the bullies. And whenever there's that maybe level of ambiguity, you can kind of kill it with kindness and approach it with like sincerity. Hey, fantastic question. Uh, let me let me uh, see what I can do to, to help you out. Because that's what is so challenging about that platform. And I'm, I'm wondering too, if, if when you saw that change of the audience interaction on your end, when it became, you know, maybe you interacting with other scientists, sharing things like what's happening with covariance, what's happening with next strain, et cetera, to, oh, this person is like outside of, this, of what we would maybe consider the scientific community and they're interacting with your posts and you're trying to filter signal from noise. Like you're, you're exactly having that question in your head. Is this person really curious? Are they, is that a proper critique or are they just being mean? You know, did, was it obvious when it, was it through the pandemic you saw that or was it even early on after? What's your experience with that? So I do think that earlier on in the pandemic, uh, things were generally more friendly. I think that the really the rise of more of the conspiracy theories, which happened only near to the end of 2020 and then really took off later. I think that brought a lot of the cruelty and the ignorance and the wanting to start a fight. I think early in the pandemic, there was actually, and, and you, I'm sure you can remember this, it was actually a really strong spirit of, of you know, let's come together and let's let's try and come up with solutions as a community. So actually in those early days, for which I'm quite grateful because those of course were my early days, I suddenly had way more followers on Twitter than I ever expected. Most of those interactions were really kind. Um, and then later on, it became a bit more of a gamble as to how people were approaching you. But I'd say that there's not, there was never a magic way of telling the difference. And I won't, you know, I didn't get it right every time. Sometimes I would write back to a troll and they really were just a troll, but I didn't know that from one message. I'm sure sometimes I didn't write back to people that were genuinely curious and I didn't, you know, choose them to be the one. I, I thought that they seemed too aggressive, so I didn't write them back. I'm sure I didn't get it perfect all the time. But I also, another one of my kind of golden rules was that I don't owe anyone an answer. Like my social media is, especially in the pandemic, I saw that as something that I can do to help. It's part of my service as a scientist to try and help communicate the science in this time of crisis and this time of uncertainty. But it is not the job for which I am paid. And even if it was, my followers are not who pay me. So I do my best to make my science communication accessible. And that includes answering questions and responding to comments. But that is a choice. That is something that I'm doing of my free will as part of what I see as my job as a scientist and a lot of my free time, or at least in the pandemic, it was a lot of my free time. But no one can say that I have to answer their comment. You know, I might need to respond to my boss. I might need to respond to reviewers. I might need to respond to my colleagues, but I don't owe an answer to a random person on Twitter. And I felt, I often felt like this is actually very freeing 
because it's just a reminder that like, just because you wrote to me a, a really long detailed comment, you know, trying to show how I'm part of a conspiracy theory, doesn't mean I owe you a long and detailed comment back. And if today I have 15 other things on and a new variant just got announced and I have meetings with the WHO and I'm trying to get a new update to covariance out and I just don't have time, that is an acceptable answer for why I didn't write you back. It is my choice to answer you. And I, I, it's important to not feel obligated to stress yourself out over, I have to write back to every single person that's messaged me. And if I decide I'm gonna pick five today and respond to those people, that's okay. The rules are my rules. And that I think is very freeing and, and also stops you from getting to a situation where you feel like you have to write to everyone and you maybe end up writing answers that you might regret later because you're tired, you're stressed, you're overwhelmed, and you might not put things in the right word and it might go viral in a way that you didn't mean for it to. But if you remember that you're in control of the situation, it means that you can stop when you feel like you need to stop. You get there's so many things I wanted to respond to there. The first of which is that it's it's apparent that you fostered this ability to compartmentalize and and set boundaries around these different uh, you know aspects of your life. And I think that's really a prudent thing to do, especially for someone like you mentioned. You didn't necessarily aim for an audience this large, but as it was growing, no. it was like you knew where the threats could lie. And I think that's what's a bit of the intimidating factor of scientists kind of interacting with, with social media is that those threats seem intense. And it's like, I don't know how my I'm going to handle that even just mentally, spiritually of like people, you know, associating my name with just like the craziest kinds of theories of cover up or whatever it is. Not most people walk through that thinking like, okay, let me just draw that line. And it's easy, simple cut, you know, because it's I, I'm going to be thinking like my cousin who I, I don't talk to all the time he's going to read that and he's going to associate this and like you know you can imagine how that kind of spirals into um, anxiety to some degree so i it, that's really one of the first things more of a comment than anything commending you for giving yourself those golden rules and articulating those so other people realize hey there is a means by which we can interact as scientists on these forums to communicate our ideas and maintain a rigidity around what we feel is our appropriate responsibility here and that's actually probably the thread I, i'm most curious in pulling on there you, you called it your, your service as a scientist well, i think that's a a strong phrase there because you know when we're going through academia maybe getting our graduate degrees that's not talked about often of like what is our role in communicating these ideas and only until recently have i thought okay maybe i do have a role in this and i can help share some of the fantastic ideas again i've been the consumer of these but i haven't necessarily outside of, you know, papers and like, you know, manuscripts and, and our forms of communication to the, can you speak on your servitude there and how you see a, a scientist maybe responsibility or at least your own personal responsibility uh, in communicating these these types of ideas to the, the larger, broader audience? Yeah, so just before I jump into that, though, I do want to add one little clarification because when I talk about having that line between, you know, what how my rules for interacting on social media, those are easy to execute in social media. That doesn't necessarily mean that I always had perfect lines between what people said or accused me of or what happened and whether I was anxious about it. That's a different story. And I feel like that's also worth touching on briefly because I don't want people to think that the only way you can be on social media is if you're superhuman and you literally never react to what anyone says to you ever, because that is definitely not me. 
And it, there, I mean, just because I didn't respond to it does not mean that sometimes that I was not hurt or worried about what people wrote about me. For sure, sometimes I did worry about it. And, but I think that what I realized early on was that unless these questions or comments came from actual scientists in my field, then it's very unlikely that they would have an impact on how people perceive me. So it is worth saying, for example, that if another scientist that I know is a real scientist or clinician, okay, or, or even a, a respected journalist, if they wrote back with legitimate questions, which to be fair, they were always polite, so kind of easy enough, I would prioritize that because I feel like here I'm more confident we can have a, a constructive dialogue for resolving maybe a, a disagreement about, you know, whether we use the word endemic yet or not. You know, we can have a real conversation about this as scientists and I'm not so worried about them accusing me of being a conspiracy nut or yeah. something. Yeah, I appreciate that um, vulnerability, but, Emma. Definitely. Yeah, but that that doesn't mean that, of course, I people didn't also write with, with other hurtful things. And I think what I really realized, though, is that your instinct is to defend yourself. When someone writes, you know, you're in bed with Bill Gates and you're getting paid to say all of this, your instinct is to jump in and say, no, I'm not. And here, let me tell you all the ways I'm not. Number one, they're not going to believe you because, of course, you say that. You're, you're in on the conspiracy, so why would you admit the truth? So you're never going to be able to convince them that you're not, you know, getting paid by Big Pharma. But by defending yourself, you are keeping that interaction going. You're drawing more attention to it, and you're, you're almost like sending up a flare for other trolls to say, like, oh, I will talk about this subject with you. I, I'm, I'm fighting against it, but we are talking about the subject you wanted to talk about. And what I learned was that even though it would really upset me and I would worry about, I mean, not, I didn't really worry that anyone would ever seriously think that I was part of some giant conspiracy, but, you know, people would accuse me of, oh, you're just on social media for the attention. And that was actually something that, that did sting because I would doubt my own intentions. Am I just here for the attention? Am I really doing good? You know? Is what I'm doing worth it, or am I just really, you know, basking in the limelight? That that did press on an insecurity. But what I learned is that it was better for me to go away and think about those things and come to my own conclusions about why I was on social media. And I did not ever have to defend myself to those people. And by doing that, it never helped the situation, only worse. So, sorry, that was to go way back to that first point you made no, without no. getting to your I, second you point mind, at all <laughs> let's, let's take one more step on that tangent because that yeah, is sure. something i certainly uh try to teeter-totter with a little bit in my own mind of like even when you're posting something there's you know an inherent self-aggrandizing look at me component to it so then you know obviously we come from the humble world of science where it's like I, I write in a passive voice because i'm not even a part of this thing i'm observing something to tell you about it um so yeah how have you come to balance that, you know, I don't even know if they're opposing, but they feel as if they're opposing priorities of highlighting my self-work and, and my ideas and, you know, the limelight, as you described, versus, no, this is me sharing. And, and I don't know, maybe it's not also negative to seek some level of limelight and highlight yourself in the, the works that you're doing. Yeah, so this is a tough one because I won't pretend like I have all of the answers here or all of the insights here. And I, I think that also it's not necessarily a sin if you do get pleasure out of sharing things on social media. I think if the only people allowed on social media were people that really hated it and did it because they had to, 
we probably would not have a super like fun and exciting social media venue. So I think it is okay if you can enjoy doing science communication, but that's different from, are you doing it only so that people look at you? You know, I, I think, I think it's, there's no black and white there, but there's a spectrum. And I think if you think about it that way, you can think, yes, I may enjoy my job, but that doesn't mean that that's the only reason that I'm here. Um, so for me, I think a lot of, I, I guess for me, my tactic has often been that I, at least, and, and I'm biased because it's from my view, but I have not sought out to be in newspapers or sought out to have 80,000 followers. This, none of these were goals I ever had. And I merely tried to put forth the best information in the best way that I could that I felt would be the most useful. And it's the information that I feel like led to the popularity. And so for me, that was always a bit of reassurance that it wasn't that I was putting myself forward as such. It wasn't that I was going out and contacting newspapers and saying, hey, 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 do you want to hear my thoughts about the variants? It was, I'm putting out information and it's such good information that people are finding it useful and they would like to have more of that information. So for me, that was kind of my balance between you know, is it just for me or is it that I have a talent for putting that information out that well? And basically the public is voting. They're saying, yes, we like that information. Can we have some more like that, please? Um, rather than, I guess, yeah, it being all about me and, oh, they want more of me. I was never under that impression. I was under the impression of they want more of the information that I can provide in that format that I can provide it. And I think that helped keep me grounded. It gives you maybe the, the defined North Star that the, the scientific communication is the North Star and there's some, you know, other benefits or, or, or at least outcomes of that, some of which is that you are in the limelight. If Is that a fair way to describe it, to summarize maybe what wow. you said there? Yeah, yeah, no. So I think I think that that's a good summary. Sorry, I thought I thought you were going to ask me to define limelight. <laughs> no, 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 um, <laughs> no, no, no. Unless you care to. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because I don't I don't feel like I was ever in the limelight. But but yes, no. I think that exactly. If the purpose of what you're doing really is to try and get good science out there, then there may well and hopefully there will be. I would wish for everyone that science communication is a is a process that they get a lot out of and that is enjoyable and that may help to raise their profile and connect them with other scientists and other people. There's no reason why there can't be good benefits. Mm. But yeah, I think there's a difference of, are you there for the for that reason mostly, or are you there because you love it every time you get a retweet? Ah, well said, well said. And, and that could be some kind of, you know, internal metric is like, is this, what is, what is the intent of this kind of post? Um, and is that for the self-aggrandizing component of it? Is it for highlighting me or is it for highlighting uh, the work I, I, I care to do? And I think that segues actually us well back to that original topic of <laughs> the scientific communication and the servitude that, that you've expressed in communicating the ideas that you've spent so long, so much of your life, obviously learning and uh, pushing forward. So yeah, can you speak to that? The, the, the servitude and how you've taken that as a personal responsibility and maybe a comment on the scientific community at large and is this something more of us should be thinking about maybe a part of our curriculums even of how to interact with communication beyond just the manuscripts and forms that we all know well so i in general i would say yes i think we do need more aware we need more science communication we need more awareness of science communication and we need more training of science communication 
but with a huge caveat that I don't think everyone has to be a science communicator. Well, I guess we all do in some extent, because if you're not writing papers, good luck being a scientist, but you don't have to be a science communicator in the more kind of popular genre. You don't need to be on Twitter. You don't need to make YouTube videos. This just isn't for everyone. And I think that's okay to acknowledge for some people, the idea of being on a podcast, the idea of being on a, a news reel or something, this is terrifying. It's stressful. They get no pleasure out of it. They may not be very good at it. If we're very honest, I don't think we have to pretend like it's something for everyone. And I think that's okay. One of the reasons why I did stick when, when I started to grow in popularity on Twitter, one of the reasons I did stick to it was because I feel like I do have a talent for science communication. I feel like it's something that actually comes pretty easy to me. I'm pretty good at it and I do get, I enjoy it. I mean, I get, I get a bit nervous. Um, I won't lie. I mean, I get very nervous before I go on some international TV show, but I get a, I get a thrill at the end. I get an endorphin rush and I, and I always finish kind of smiling. I, I do enjoy it, but that means that I'm the person who should do the science communication. Like this is something that I can contribute. It's a talent that I can use to help, especially in times like the pandemic, when it really is critical to have good communication. What I think is hard to know is who are those people without trying? You don't know if you're good at science communication. I, at least I didn't know I was good at it until you have an opportunity to do it or until people make you aware that it's a thing. And the only way that we'll figure that out is by making sure that our generations of scientists that are coming up through the ranks have an awareness of what science communication is, what that might look like, because it isn't all, you know, being on Twitter, it can be having a blog or a YouTube channel or running a podcast, you know, there's many different ways of, of science communication, it can be having science days with your local community, you know, for school children or going to local school and giving a talk about what you do. So showing what that means, and then allowing people an opportunity to find out, do they like it? Are they good at it? So that they are prepared, because I think one thing that's really important is you don't no, I guess, if you might be in a situation where you would be a good science communicator. Mm. I never thought that I would end up in front of the media. I was a not very well-known postdoc who worked on enteroviruses when the pandemic started. There was no reason for me to think, you know, I'm just waiting in the wings for my opportunity to be a science <laughs> communicator. That's not what was happening. It was an opportunity that arose where I could do some good at a time when the world was going crazy. And I've heard similar stories from other people. You know, it's not just pandemics. I've heard stories where, you know, there was volcanic eruptions in countries and the only scientist, you know, in, in some country that spoke the local language and knew about volcanoes was also, you know, some PhD student or postdoc. And suddenly they're on the national news explaining about volcanic eruptions and how they can disrupt air travel. So I think it really, like, you just never really know when the media may need someone who has some level of expertise. It may be much earlier than you think. I definitely thought that, you know, you don't go on TV as a science expert until you're a professor. And it turns yeah. out that's, that's not a rule. Um, so it really too. can be. Yeah, yeah exactly. But and it, even PhD students. So I think it, it is just important to keep in mind that it's much better if that day does come that the scientists who might be able to fill that role have some idea of how to handle that and mm -hmm. what it means and that they can be helpful because this is the other thing that I think is really important is, I mean, I would never urge someone to go onto any program or give comment on something that they don't feel very confident about. You know, if you really feel like you're not an expert, turn, turn it down. 
But I also think people really overestimate what expert means. For example, you may not be an expert in the novel coronavirus. None of us were in 2020. It was new. That's the point. We knew very little about it. But if you knew something about, you know, respiratory viruses, about how viruses evolve, about past epidemics or pandemics that have happened, then you could actually answer a lot of questions that the general public had. It didn't mean that you have to be the leading expert in the world that all the professors would turn to and bow down to as you know the expert. That's not what you need in those times. What you need is just someone who can give good, solid information about topics like, why is this new virus scary? which you don't need to be you know, a, a tenured professor to answer that question necessarily. And I think a lot of people feel like they should be before they can answer that question. But especially in a time of emergency, you just being able to give a good, solid, honest, truthful answer is often better than them going to the next pick who might not give an honest, solid, truthful answer. So it's always important to keep in mind, you know, am I expert enough? Not am I the world's number one expert? Yeah, well said. Very well said. And especially, I really like the, the ideas you, you you talked about giving yourself the opportunities to try these different things because you don't know where your, your affinity is going to be. And then even that the awareness that not everyone's going to have that affinity, but some people will. So if you look at you know the, the scientific ecosystem, if you will, there's some level of speciation. There's some people who gravitate towards these kinds of activities, and they help the scientific community, I think, at large. I think you and, and others have done a great job of this too, of highlighting the other scientists that maybe aren't, you know, willing to go on the international uh, interview and things like that. Of like, what's the work behind the scenes? Like, hey guys, there's a ton of things happening in this laboratory, that laboratory, all of the time. And I think it's a really cool platform that you've utilized to highlight what's happening below that maybe just immediate interface that most people uh, are, are aware of and interacting with there. Yeah, and I think that's important. It's important to also, if you are in these roles, as you say, to try and highlight that there's many more people than just the scientists that appear on TV. But also to try and push some of those people in case they do want that chance. Because I do feel like, I feel like a lot of times when I've tried to encourage other scientists, you know, I really think that you your voice would be really useful here. Would you consider doing an interview for this? It can be really difficult. And I, and I accept that, you know, for some people, this really just is the worst thing in the world and i do not want to force them to do an interview if that's going to keep them up for three days and they're going to be miserable the whole time but for other people i really do think there's a lot of doubt and ability there's just a lot of no no you don't understand i yeah okay I, I do work on this and i did just publish a paper on it but i'm not an expert and i think just getting people's confidence up a little bit like no but you are in this in this scheme of the world you are an expert actually you may not be an expert, you know, the expert in this tiny little field of viral biodynamics, but you are an expert and you know enough for this interview. And just encouraging people to have a little more confidence that their views can be helpful. It, it might mean a lot more diversity in who we see in the media, which I think is mm -hmm. really important to have younger voices, to have voices from places that are not so well represented and to make sure that, yeah, it isn't just the same old faces that we Absolutely. Emma, this has been such a fantastic conversation. You've been, you know, written about in the New York Times, interviews, as you mentioned, internationally. I've seen articles in languages I couldn't understand, CNN, <laughs> Bloomberg, and now you can cross the Bioinformatics Lab podcast <laughs> off that list. That is truly the one I've been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, all right, if you don't mind, going back, this last question I had, because 
looking at that conversation of personal and professional content, I was looking back. I didn't realize you had a YouTube channel. And one of the first videos, do you know what I'm about to reference? Your first video? I, I have a vague idea what it might be. <laughs> Fort Worth Stockyards Quick Draw Shooting Competition that people are dying to know. What is this competition and what was your involvement in it? So I had absolutely no involvement in it and I have no idea why I uploaded this video to YouTube. <laughs> is that it? That's the story of it? Well, so I so I grew up partially in Texas, as some people may know, and this was this was on some trip back when I was visiting my mother. We went to Fort Worth. It's where the West begins. If you haven't been to the rodeo there, you haven't been to a rodeo. And they often have Western themed events. So they were obviously having a quick draw competition. Why I felt the need to film it and why I put it on YouTube will be lost to the sands of time. I have no idea. I may have been trying out it, there's a high likelihood I had a new feature on my phone that was you know, shared to YouTube or something similar. <laughs> and that's probably why it went there. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, hey, if people need a little bit of a piece of quick draw in Texas, then I'm glad to provide that with this video. <laughs> and the people thank you for it. All right. Thank you, Emma. Appreciate this, this conversation. And yeah, hopefully there's another one down the line here. And uh, yeah, we'll see you at the next conference. We run into each other there. Have a good one. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a great chance to chat with you. Really insightful questions, a topic I always enjoy talking about. And yes, hope we run into each other again soon.